the Jews, which was their harvest celebration. So it's, so um, we're going to read it, but one thing you need to know is that scholars don't like this psalm because although we know from history that the, the Israelites um, sang this psalm during Thanksgiving ceremonies and such, um, it doesn't sound like a Thanksgiving song. So many people are starting to push and say, no, we must have, there must be a mistake somewhere. And maybe it wasn't used in that way. But I am going to instead tell you it was used that way. And the reason we find it so foreign is because it's such a radical view of thankfulness that it actually has very little in common with Canadians, North Americans. Okay, so let's read it. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the people praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for, your, for you rule pe the peoples with, in, with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. So, seems pretty straightforward. But what's curious about it is the fact that it doesn't start... With, if you have a Bible, by the way, it's a good thing, because as usual, I'm going to go right through it pretty carefully, so pay attention. It starts not by saying thank you, but saying give me more. Bless us, O oh Lord. And that is, uh, it's hard. You see, sometimes as Christians, we feel like we have to um, uh, give excuses for God. I know he said kill all the Canaanites, but, you know, he was having a bad day. Um, He's God. He can do what he wants. We almost feel like we have to exonerate him. Um, if it is true, don't sugarcoat it. Understand it. It's true. So why does it start that way? So if we look carefully at this psalm, we're going to find three things, as usual. We're going to see that the profile of a thankful person, a thankful Christian, a thankful believer, does three things. They look up, they look around, and they look out. Up, around, out. Okay? First one, up. We're around the time of year, well, thankfulness. You know, you, you start thanking God for what you have, and we saw the video, and that's good. We should. We're also around that time of year where we start thinking about Christmas gifts, and we're going to give people. Now, if you think about what is a gift, see, because this is what Israel should be thankful for. At a harvest ceremony, you are thankful for having received a bountiful harvest. It's a gift, and you're thankful, so you think, uh, logically, I should thank God for it, and you should. But think about what you and I think about a gift being, because it's very different. I'm going to show you the difference between our idea of a gift and the ancient idea of a gift. See, here's the definition. A gift is something given without expectation of payment. That's actually straight out of a dictionary, so it's pretty, that's what we think. But here's the limitation of that, uh, of that and why this psalm shocks us. Because think of how you, if you, somebody gives me an iPad, by the way, I'm accepting those. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, but if somebody gives you a gift like an iPad, you know what you say? Here is a, is a gift. Notice the tense. It is a gift. If a week later somebody comes and says, hey, nice iPad, what do you say? Oh, it was a gift. You see, a gift is only a gift in our culture. In that moment, it's given. But once it's received, it becomes a possession. It's mine. It's no longer a gift. That is completely the opposite way the Israelites and the Jews and the Bible understood it. In fact, not just them, most ancient cultures still think this way if they're still around. And I'll show you one example. Um, 
Have you ever heard the term, and I will justify and redeem this term hopefully for you today, Indian giver? Okay, today it's a derogatory term. It's uh, arguably, ra well, everything's racist now, so, you know, it, it's, it's, it's got bad tones, and understandably. Here is why that term was uh, created. Um, I'll tell you a story. It's probably the easiest way to get the communication across. A colonist comes over from England and settles in Toronto, then goes out and meets a tribe, uh, a native tribe leader. That tribe leader then, out of respect, gives him a gift, a pipe, let's say, handcrafted pipe from his, his tribe. Man takes it, thank you very much, because he's a nice Westerner. He takes it and says, this will look great on my mantelpiece. It goes and it becomes a possession. Puts it on his mantelpiece, and he looks at it, he admires it, but it's basically now in the catalog of his possessions. It's one of his things. Then a few weeks later, this tribal chief will show up and he'll say, ah, there's the pipe. Give me a smoke from that pipe. And the man will say, you know, I, I want to keep it clean. So no. Well, why is it sitting up there? Well, because you gave it to me as a gift. And then they, the man would say, well, then give it back. And here comes the term Indian giver. He gave, but he expects it back. You see, that term comes because the Europeans and us, we thought one way. A gift is something I take and it becomes mine. The native folks, the Israelites, ancient culture said, no, when a gift becomes a possession, you have taken it out of circulation and it stops being a gift. A gift must be perpetuated. It must be given out again. You can't take it out of that stream of giftedness. Otherwise, it becomes a possession, you become a capitalist, and this is the mess you have. Now, um, let me give you a more practical example. If I was to come and, uh, well, maybe, it's, maybe it would work in, a, in Woodstock. If somebody gives me a cow, okay? Here, Carl, welcome to the neighborhood. Here's a cow. Um, I have an option there. I could just take it and um, breed it, make more cows, get some milk from it, and make a nice little empire for myself. But, the, but you, if you're a good ancient Jew, you would come and say, you're getting rich off my money. I gave you that as a gift, and now you're getting rich off it? Some nerve. What they would expect is this. I gave you a cow. Welcome to the neighborhood. Throw a party now so we can all have some of that cow. Why don't you give it away to a young family that's getting married? Do something, but don't keep it. It's actually immoral to keep a gift in the ancient culture. And so much so that if you remember the Brothers Grimm, such wonderful fairy tales, read the, read the original ones. They're not nice. Um, Disney makes them much more palatable. But there's one, uh, that, and the reason I'm bringing this up is the fairy tales understood this. They understood that gifts have to be kept going. It's almost that pay it forward option. Give it out again, give it out again. And there's this, um, there's this, this Brothers Grimm fairy tale, fairy tale called The Ungrateful Son. And here's how it goes. Um, a man is sitting with his wife down to dinner for a beautiful roast chicken. And as he's about to dig into it, he sees his father coming down the road. Of course, the man is, doesn't want to share his chicken with his dad. So he hides the chicken. And then his dad comes over, they chat for a while, they share a drink, he sends his father on the way, and then the man goes back and pulls the chicken out to eat. He's gone, now I don't have to share my chicken, here it is. But he finds the chicken has been turned into a toad. It's Brothers Grimm, bear with it. And the toad leaps onto his face, and it sticks there. It won't go away. If he can't pull it off, if anyone comes near him, the, the toad threatens to jump on their face, so everybody backs away. And he finds the only way to deal with this toad now, now that it's on his face, is to feed it or else it eats his face. 
He has to continually feed the greed. Feed it over and over. Don't tell your children that at night. That won't go well. But do you see, the image is clear that here this time of year, we thank God for the things we have. Very good. But you would be wrong if you thought God is blessing you so you can have a comfortable life. God doesn't provide for you when you need a job and health so that you can then live a life of ignoring people and possessing it to yourself. Thankfulness in the Bible must be pushed outward. And this is why here in Psalm 67, you see it starting with the ironic blessing, Aaron. The blessing of Aaron. Remember in Numbers? The Lord bless you and keep you. How does it start? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. It starts with a blessing. This is why. The idea is, I want to be blessed, not so that I can have more iPads and a comfortable home and weekends off, but so that I can then bless other people with it. God, bless us as a nation, Israel, so all the world will see how awesome you are to us, and then they will want part of you too. It's actually the opposite of our Thanksgiving feast, where we actually feed the toad every... We're going to go feed your toad tonight. Okay, you're going to feed them with chicken and, or turkey, I guess, not chicken. Um, and we're going to do that because it's bred into us. You and I have all drunk the cultural Kool-Aid, where we think being thankful is thanking God for what we have. God, thank you that I'm not stuck in Ethiopia having to struggle every day. Thank you that I don't have cancer. Thank you that my kids have not walked away from the Lord. And that's such a small view of thankfulness. That's great. But the idea is God saying, great, I've given you health. Go. Use it. Help somebody. I've given you wealth, not so that you can have a fancy home. Use it. That's not meant to make you feel guilty, okay? We are all richer than most people on the planet in this world. Um, the idea is God saying, stop. Th thankfulness is radically outward focused. Radically outward focused. And that's only there when that first perspective, when you look up. When you look for God for the definition of thankfulness in a gift, it changes the way you behave on Thanksgiving, okay? And the very practical way for that is um, look outside for the Samaritan's Purse. One example, you know, there's one, in fact, I'll read you a quote. There's a guy from Harvard named Lewis Hyde, and he writes about this, the idea of a gift. And he says this about the Indian giver. See, the Indian giver understood as a cardinal property, what the cardinal property of a gift was, that whatever we have been, has been given to us is supposed to be given away, not kept. Or if it is kept, something sim of similar value should move on in its stead. The way a billiard ball may stop when, it's set, when it sends another one scurrying across the felt. You and I are meant to be billiard balls. If you're going to stop, if you, if you get a gift and you're going to hoard it, you better have sent something else moving. See that white little ball you hit on a, on a pool table? will stop, but only when it's transferred its momentum to another ball. And that idea keeps things moving, and that's the way God intends it. And this uh, Samaritan's Purse is one tiny way where we go and we do something. But if you imagine now, imagine a, a church that this is something we always are having in our mind, always aware of, that we should always be, you know, the term is paying it forward, I guess, is the very cultural term, but in a godly sense, to bring honor to him, to show people that it's not my, Carl's generosity, but God's generosity to me that does this. Imagine a church that is so outward focused like this, how would people resist it? They wouldn't come here and see a selfish church with a beautiful building only. They see a church that breathes in only so it can breathe out again, constantly. So that's the point one. Look up for your definition of thankfulness. Second one is this, look around. So this view of, of, of a gift challenges individualism, which we love. We love being individuals. There's a quote, again, I'll use another one. This one came from, a, a re actually, 
a couple days ago, a Globe and Mail article. So a psychologist named Martin Seligman says this, in the past quarter century, events occurred that so weakened our commitment to larger entities as to leave us almost naked before the ordinary assaults of life. Where can one now turn for identity, for purpose, and for hope? When we need spiritual furniture, we look around and see that all the comfortable leather sofas and stuffed chairs have been removed, and all that's left to sit on is a small, frail, folding chair of myself. What he's saying is this. He's saying, you know, the world has kind of beat you down. You are naturally soured on churches because they, uh, the televangelists ruin things. There's scandals of all kinds in the church, so you, you sour on that institution. You sour on the schools because they're, well, because they're not perfect. You sour on the government. I don't have to say any more about that. We sour on everything, and what has happened? When you start thinking you can't rely on anybody, who's left to rely on? You. And then you find that that's not enough, that you can't even rely on yourself because it's not enough. You need more than just you to survive. And younger generations are getting it worse than ours. I'm a Gen Xer, you know, the cynical type, as you can tell. Um, the ones coming after us are even more so. And, you know, you often hear people hammering poor millennials. I won't hammer you. I don't like you, but I won't hammer you. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm joking. But listen, when you think about the millennial and the, the generations coming, consider what they've had to deal with. So if you were born in 1995, so that would make you 22 right now, you have lived through, this is the, see, we all have events that frame our, 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 our identity. Some of you may remember uh, July 20th, 1969, landing on the moon. You may remember Watergate. You may remember, who knows, right up, Tiananmen Square in 89 and so on, right? Um, this is the stuff that has happened in the last 22 years. The Oklahoma City bombing, Columbine, 9-11, the Iraq War, the terrorism, I mean, I don't know where to begin, terrorism, let's leave it there. Tsunamis, earthquakes, floods and storms, 160 mass shootings since 2000 in America. The Great Recession, church scandals, SARS, social media, which is added to anxiety, reality TV, fake and real news, bullying, cyberbullying, environmental crises, fentanyl, video games, and overprotective parents. I had to throw that one in. So, if that is the worldview that our younger people are picking up, if that's the, the culture they're swimming in, should we be surprised they're individualists? Who are they going to trust? You say, well, they should trust their parents. But the world they've inherited came from their parents. It's hard to be a kid and not be influenced by that. Millennials may not even know that that's the stuff, but that is what makes them a little sour and wanting to rebuild, restore things. They want to start again. They're going back to things that they can trust, like vinyl records and mustaches. It's true. There's a trend where millennials are moving back, and that's not by accident. It's not because they're cool. It's because desperately they, things don't seem stable now, and they want something that's stable. So they go back to a generation when things were, and they're trying to restore it. A lot of millennials are woodworkers. A lot of millennials want to go out and serve the world, and that's because they're rebelling somehow against this individualism that they don't like. They know they have it, and they don't like it. But, the, but there it is. It's in us. Okay? Um, but this psalm radically, again, pushes against individualism. It never says me or my. It always says us. And in this, uh, we're going to see in the next point where it pushes it out even further. But the Jews were not perfect. Read the Old Testament. Not perfect. But they understood they needed each other. They understood the value of community. Not always. I'm not in any way painting a perfect picture of the Old Testament. But they understood a sense where they needed one another. 
Um, and today we see again pushing against that. How many people do you know who say, I don't need to go to church to be a believer, do I? I don't need to go. And many of you probably don't even know why, how do you even respond to that question? God is God everywhere, isn't he? Well, I'll give you just a few ways to respond to that and why this psalm radically, again, says thanksgiving isn't thanking him for how wonderful you are, but thank him in part to look at this community that we need. The first one is just logical. If I marry somebody and say, I love you, but I hate your body, that's a problem. If you look to God and say, I love you, but I hate your body, you, you please understand you have an issue. There's got to be a problem there. Pockmarked and riddled with sin as it is, this is the only body he has, folks. And somehow he loves it. So if you don't, you must at least face the fact that there's a problem somewhere. And it's not enough to just say, it's the church's problem. I'm not, I'm not going to go into it until it gets its stuff right. Okay. That's not a, not a, lot of a viable answer. It's a lazy way to, to approach the church. But that's a simple one. Next one is more interesting. Nowhere else will you be challenged to grow. Nowhere else will you be challenged in this way to love people who are not like you. See, in the world, if I didn't come to church, I would make friends that are like me. I make my friends in my image. They like what I like. They sing what I sing or not, don't sing. All these things. Because then it's safe, you see. As long as people around me affirm what I love, they're never going to challenge me to be thinner, a better dad, a better husband, a better pastor, a better preacher. But in the church, I'm forced to be around people who I generally have nothing in common with except for my father only thing I have in common with you. But that alone is a sharpening process. And if you're not involved in that, there's a problem. Um, aside from that, you know, when you succeed in your jobs in the world, do you think your colleagues are really happy for you? I worked in the corporate world a long time, and every time I got promoted, I loved it. Um, but my coworkers, they may have done this, but they're thinking, he had all the breaks. If I could do a better job than him. Why him? Why not me? What if you're in a church where people actually celebrate your success as though you succeeded, as they succeeded? Imagine now, I am a, a, a mediocre musician at best. Mediocre, and I mean, that's actually a compliment to me. Um, imagine if I said, Robin is good, but you know, she's practiced. If I tried harder, I could be as good as Robin. Now, that's the spirit. What if I simply said, man, that's awesome. What if I saw a piece of art that is created by many of the artists in this church and said, I love that thing so much that I'm not any happier. I couldn't be any happier and, want, and pleased in that painting even if I painted it. That's how much I celebrate it. Or when somebody's going through a trouble and trying to grow in some way and they, they throw some kind of a, a burden off their shoulders, I should celebrate with them as if I had shunned that same burden. It doesn't happen in the world, but it can and should happen in the church. Now, this is the most important part. In the church... Without the church, without a community, without looking around in thankfulness, you and I will have an incomplete picture of God. C.S. Lewis had a small group of friends he called the Inklings. And when one of them died, he said this. He said, well, paraphrasing. He said, you know, now that so John is gone, I will never see things the same way about my other friends. Because there's something in John that when he was in that group, his sense of humor brought a certain aspect out of Peter brought a certain aspect out of Tom and even one out of me. And now that he's gone, those parts that only John could bring out in me are dead because no one else can bring those things out of me anymore. In the same way, I see God in a certain way. I, I encounter him very specifically, probably because I'm, like most of us, shut off. I want to see God on my terms. 
So what I need all of you to do in my life groups, especially, that's where you really get sharpened, is I need to be able to see how God has revealed himself to Steve. I'm assuming he's over here. I don't know. No, anyway, not that important. I need to see how God has revealed himself to those of you who have struggled in a way that I have never struggled and may not ever struggle. Because in that, I begin to see the fullness of God. If I think that God is limited to the one that I have seen, come on, it's a tiny view of God. I need the men's group. The life group, sign up if you're not part of a life group. I'm not just shamelessly promoting these things. It's vital to you. I'll read another little quote. This one comes from a wonderful book I often quote is A Christmas Carol. So Scrooge, you know, so I'm not going to tell you the whole story because you hopefully, I'm assuming if you've, you, you must know what the story is. So Scrooge at one point is traveling around with the ghost of Christmas present and he stumbles in on a party being held by his nephew. And his nephew, and they're, they're talking about how Scrooge just won't come to his family party. He refuses to come. And this, the nephew says this, um, what is the consequence to his taking a dislike to us and not making merry, merry with us? I think that he loses some pleasant moments, which, he could, which could do him no harm, and I'm sure he loses pleasanter companions than he could find in his own thoughts, either his moldy office or in his dusty chambers. Now, what he's saying is this. You know, when Scrooge refuses to be a part of our family gatherings, he's losing. Not, uh, I, this is actually limited, by the way. I'm going to explain where, where Dickens misses a mark a little. But when you don't go to a life group, you think you're gaining more sleep. Yesterday for men's group at 7 a.m., by the way, more sleep for some of us, you think you're, you're going to gain because you're sleeping more. You're actually losing. That's what this psalm is saying. That's why it says us, bless us, not just me, us. Um, and not just that. If you don't go to my life group, I'm actually losing because I'm missing what you uniquely can show me. And this is God's intent for us to gather. So when somebody says, I don't have to go to church, you've, not, you've misunderstood the point. You've not been listening to what God's trying to do. He's not just trying to get you saved for eternity and then leave you alone like you're done. Now I can move on to the next project. And we have to stop thinking that way. This psalm is, that's why this throws the scholars off. Why would a Thanksgiving psalm be asking you to look at community? Shouldn't it be surely saying, thank you for what you've done, not look out and bless us more? No, this is an incredibly radical way of seeing giving or thankfulness. So that's part two, you look around at the church. Last one is you look out. Um, so, you know, individualism is bad. Being selfish is bad. But you know what isn't much better? Nationalism. If I then say, I don't care only about me, I care about this church. Because you know what happens while well, we're seeing nationalism all over the world right now. But then what becomes is you become just as bitter. You just transfer your selfishness for yourself to the selfishness for the community. So now you become a champion of IPC, the greatest church in the world. And you start to say, Maranatha doesn't have it. IPC, or uh, I don't know, other churches. Uh, Calvary doesn't have it. And you start becoming just as bitter and small as you were when you were an individualist. You've just transferred the sin to something you think is more noble. So simply saying we look up and we look around is nice, but it's not complete yet because it just makes you a, a bigger, smaller person. That's all it does. So, um, and this is why in the psalm, uh, it's in the English. I don't have to be, you know, I always use Hebrew. A, a prof once told me, Carl, uh, Hebrew and Greek is like underwear. Good to have, but don't tell people you have them. <laughs> don't show people all the time. Um, so, but in this, you see, if the psalmist had kept these words in singular in verses 3 to 5, then he would mean Israel. If he said, bless the people, bless the nation, 
he's always referring to himself and to Israel, always. But when it turns plural, which it does in the, in the Hebrew, then he's not saying bless Israel. He's saying bless the world, bless all of them. Now, this is completely, see, remember, and your little table tonight when you're eating stuffing and turkey and all these wonderful things, are you going to be thinking about the world? I hope so. But that's what this psalm is pushing us to do, to see something far bigger. We don't pray for more possessions, but for people to experience God. Now, evangelism like this, pushing out, this is evangelism, make no mistake, is not Billy Graham on a, on a soapbox preaching. We think of that. Evangelism is actually the most natural thing you should be doing. Let me explain it. Um, when I go to a great restaurant, read a great book, hear a good joke, I got to tell somebody. In fact, your Instagram posts are all that, aren't they? You, well, not all. Sometimes you're just showing off. But other times, well, let's be honest. But there are times when you eat at a restaurant and you say, look at this plate of food. Look at this mountain. Look at this little kid. And you want to share it with people. Why is that? Because you and I, when we are satisfied by something, the, our enjoyment of that thing actually isn't complete until we have shared it with somebody. You actually burst a little. Like, I got this great joke and nobody knows it. You can't, you, you're dying to find somebody that you can tell the joke to because the most natural thing in the world is to share the thing that satisfies you. So it's not about jumping on a soapbox and preaching the gospel. That's great too. Evangelism like, the, like we are show, showing here is something far more organic about wanting to tell people. Think about what we do when I, you see a, one of these, there's so many kids at this church. You see a cute little kid and you turn to somebody and you say, isn't she adorable? What are you really saying? You're saying, enjoy this thing like I have by looking at how beautiful she is and praise it. When I say, look how adorable that kid is, I'm praising that child. Not for what she's, you know, some virtue the child has, but because she's beautiful. And that is a natural outcome of seeing something beautiful. So when Israel has seen this beautiful God, the most natural thing in the world is to say, come and see. It's beautiful. Is that normal? See, you do it, you, we do it for restaurants and for books and for sunsets, but we don't do it for God. There's a disconnect because you and I have embraced a different culture. We listen when the, when the media says, your religion is great, but keep it to yourself. Don't tell other people what to believe. Why should you? Just keep it to yourself. Don't tell people what to believe. And all the while, do you realize what they're doing to you? They're telling you what to believe. They're saying, don't tell people about Jesus. Don't you see? It's a contradiction. They're evangelizing me to their worldview. Share the gospel. I'm not saying how. You talk to God. There's a million ways to do it. There's ways here. We have the picnic by the river downtown. We have Nicaragua. We have the refuge committee. We have all sorts of things we are doing that a small way. But the simplest way is just do things organically in your workplace. How about this? If we all, instead of coming home from work, I work here, so it's kind of weird. But imagine if you come home from work, and I know you do this because everybody does, and you sit down with your wife, maybe when the kids have disappeared, and you start complaining about a coworker. Oh, they're terrible. They have this. Oh, they need Jesus. Yeah, they do. But have you said anything to them about it? No, you just much rather complain, right? Isn't it much better? Something satisfying about complaining about somebody else makes you feel better. But it's wrong. The most natural thing in the world is to tell them about Christ. We have these little, remember those new those gospels of John you got with the vision in it? Those are Gideon's documents. The point of them is to give them away, by the way. So I challenge you, you have one with a vision, give it away to somebody. I dare you. What if we 300 people gave out a gospel of John today? You know, 
Just putting it out there. Last thing, we'll close here. I don't know how long I've been going. Oh, I've got a pretty good time. Well, conclusion. Let's close here. You know, Sarah and I, after um, once the work and the kids and everything's done late at night, we'll put on Netflix and you probably fall asleep watching Netflix. That's kind of what, that's like a date when you have kids. Um, <laughs> it's a date night, you know. Um, and we were watching one series and it ended, so we thought, let's find something new. So we clicked on one episode of uh, the show. You've probably seen it, so no spoilers. I don't know. It's old. It's called Once, Once Upon a Time. It's a fairy tale kind of thing. So apparently it's very good. I, we don't know. I've seen one episode. But what this got me thinking of is this, and, and it's J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, has a, a great little essay about fairy tales. And he says something like this. He says, why do we love fairy tales? Um, why is it that you love the story about Sleeping Beauty, somebody who's asleep and needs the kiss of the one true love to be awoken? Why do you love the story of Beauty and the Beast, where someone is ugly and irreproachable, and yet because somebody loves him, that, tra that love transforms him into what they perceive him as? Why do we love the story of uh, Cinderella, where uh, a woman is basically held in slavery um, and then is delivered from it, by a great, wonderful prince who sweeps her off her feet. Why are these stories going to last forever? Well, the reason Tolkien says, and he's right, is because they're not just fairy tales. See, the rest of the world can look at them as charming stories, moral tales. You and I can see them as partly pointing to truth because deep down you are all asleep and there is a prince who will kiss you and make it all better. Because you are, deep down, and you know it, quite ugly. You're quite bitter. You're quite resentful. You think you know better than everybody, and you know it deep down. And, but there is somebody who will love you amidst being a beast, and because that person loves you, yeah, that love will transform you. Because you are in slavery like Cinderella, that might be a harsh term for what Cinderella's in, um, there is a prince out there who will save you from it, and you and I know deep down that that must be true. And we keep looking. That's why we love those stories. And if you use that image, if you know Christ to be that for you, that he has done everything so you can have everything. He gave everything so that you can have it all. He lived the life you couldn't, died the death you couldn't, so that you could have all of the things he deserves. If that is your motivation for Thanksgiving, changes everything. Because then your motivation isn't, I don't want to give Carl an iPad because he is a selfish jerk. It's, see the iPad thing again? Keep coming. Um, the motivation is then, I have been blessed, and I'm going to keep that billiard ball moving, and I'm going to bless, and I'm going to keep giving, not because they deserve it. You don't give the homeless guy at, in, on Spadina in Toronto money because he are, he's going to use it for drugs like we're all afraid of, or alcohol, or some and any other purpose. You give because you were given to. That's your job, not to be worrying about the, all those other things. And when Christ is the motivation, if that is the constant motivation, the gospel, changes everything about how you give. And I'm not saying I'm a finished product here by any stretch. I'm going to eat a lot of turkey. I'm going to thank God for my comfort because I love my comfort. But this psalm is a constant push to us. The only time it mentions harvest is at the end, and it still uses the plural. Bless us, us. That's what we do. We look to Christ for our example for thankfulness. That's all. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the complexity of this, you know, Bible, Lord, is anything but simple. We think we know it. We think we've been in the church so long that we know when somebody says, what is thankfulness? We think we know. God, thank you that this word is so deep that you have not just given us a, a simple rule book, but you have plumbed the depths of us, our depravity and our greatness. 
God, that you have put all these things in us and you've put stuffed such depth into your word, not just so that we may learn this stuff in our heads, but so that we may be changed, that we may join life groups and give, give away more and be involved more in the community and tell people about you. God, thank you for the complexity of your word. Thank you for your son. Um, and thank you for this world that you want to redeem, even if we are pushing against it sometimes, Lord. Um, you love this world. You so love the world that you gave your son. Um, show us that. Give us, break our hearts for this world as yours is. Amen.